I'm changing my message than the one that you have in the bulletin, so sorry about that. Home fellowship leaders, the questions still should be helpful. The reason I'm doing that is because I preached yesterday at our men's conference, and as I was leaving, Pastor Rob said, you need to go preach that message to the church, so that's what I'm going to do. So if you would please turn your Bible by way of introduction to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. The title for this morning's message is The New Birth. We're going to be in John chapter 3. But by way of introduction, read with me in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Want to go to heaven? Want to be in eternity with God forever? It's really simple. All you have to do is perfectly love God in every moment of your existence, with every fiber of your being, and love people perfectly every moment. And you're in. We laugh. Because we know that in and of ourselves, the impossibility of that command. This man, though, seeking to justify himself, pretending as if he loved God perfectly and loved people perfectly, Ask Jesus that awkward question, well, who's my neighbor? Why can't we love God? Why can't we love people as we should? The answer, it's because we've only been born at one time from below. We have an earthly nature. We have a flesh nature. We have a sinful nature. Perhaps... Nobody knew this better than George Whitfield. George Whitfield is one of my heroes of the faith. This summer, Allison and I got to go to Boston, and one of my goals when we were in Boston was to visit pulpits that George Whitfield had preached in. George Whitfield lived from 1714 to 1770. He was probably the single preaching force behind the first great awakening in New England. In his 34 years of ministry, he preached 18,000 sermons, three on average each day. When his ministry came to a close, he preached to more than 10 million people in person. This guy was a preaching machine. Just to give you some comparison, I've been preaching for a decade. Two times a week for a decade is 1,000 sermons. He preached for three and a half decade, and he preached 18,000 of them. It's really an incredible feat. It's estimated that 80% of the American colonies heard him preach. According to author Steve Lawson, that means that, quote, Whitfield's name was more widely recognized by colonial Americans than any living person except for British royalty. He spent his time between the colonies and England, crossing the Atlantic 13 times. He spent three years of his life on a ship and eight years of his life in the Americas. He was an incredible man. And the staple of his preaching ministry was the new birth. There was not a subject that he preached on more because he believed that the Church of England was a dead church. They professed to know God, but they did not have a new nature. And so he preached regularly on regeneration. It was also something that was very personal to him. At the age of 18, George Whitfield entered Pembroke College at Oxford University, and he'd struggled with a guilty conscience and how to be right with God from the time that he was 18 till he was 21. His struggle was so difficult that he tried to make himself right with God by disciplining his physical body. This is what Whitfield wrote about his effort to make himself right before God. I always chose the war sort of food. 
I fasted twice a week. My apparel was mean. I wore woolen gloves, a patched gown, and dirty shoes. I constantly walked out in the cold mornings till part of one of my hands was quite black. I could scarce creep upstairs. I was obligated to inform my kind tutor, who immediately sent for a physician for me. Whitfield was removed from Oxford University because he was physically unable to continue. And the illnesses that he got during that time of trying to make himself right before God ended up crippling him for the rest of his life. During that time, when he had a break from school, in the spring of 1735, he was given a book by his good friend Charles Wesley called The Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Scrugel. And while reading that book, Whitfield discovered that in order to enter the kingdom of God and to be made right with him, he must be born again. This is what Whitfield wrote about that account. I must bear testimony to my old friend Charles Wesley. He put a book into my hands called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, whereby God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I know the place. It may be superstitious, perhaps, but whenever I go to Oxford, I can't help running to that place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me the new birth. Scrugel says, a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet, my brethren, not be a Christian. How did my heart rise? How did my heart shudder? like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books, lest he should find himself a bankrupt. Yet shall I burn the book? Shall I throw it down? Shall I put it by, or shall I search into it? I did, and holding the book in my hand, thus addressed the God of the heaven and the earth, Lord, if I am not a Christian, if I am not a real one, for Jesus' sake, show me what Christianity is, that I might not be damned at last. I read a little further, And the cheat was discovered. Oh, says the author, they that know anything of religion know its vital union with the Son of God, Christ formed in the heart. Oh, that a way of divine life did break in upon my poor soul. And oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory, was my soul filled. End quote. And so... George Whitfield entered into an itinerant preaching ministry to preach the new birth on two continents over the course of 35 years. Would you turn with me, if you haven't already, to John chapter 3, and let's listen to what Jesus says about the need for this new birth. This morning's text is verses... 1 through 3. I'm sorry, 10. 1 through 10. But there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. You do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? I have three points for you this morning. They are the nature of the new birth, the need for the new birth, and the work of the new birth. And my aim is to take some mystique out of what the new birth is. That's kind of common terminology in our circles, right? To be born again. What does that even mean? 
And what was the significance of this conversation? Let's see if the Spirit won't give us some insight. First, the nature of the new birth. Now, according to Webster's Dictionary, the word nature can be defined as a kind or class usually distinguished by fundamental or essential characteristics. So, by the word nature, I mean, what is the kind of birth that Jesus was talking about in this passage? Notice in verse 4, we see that Nicodemus was confused about what kind of birth Jesus was referring to. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again. That word, again, in Greek is anothen. And it means, literally, from above or source from above. Jesus was saying, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice Nicodemus' response in verse 4. Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can one be born again? Notice the word again. So two words in verse 3. First in verse 3, the word again. And then uh, the word, actually, hold on, let me find it on my notes. I'm so sorry, guys. I lost my place. A second time. That's what I was looking for. Thank you, Kathy Moss. Sounds like your voice. So notice the word again, and notice the word second. The word again is athonen, and the word second is deuteros. Nicodemus, by his word choice, reveals that he had a fundamental, a fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus was saying. The word deuteros means second or next to uh, the first in a sequence. It's clear here that Jesus missed the meaning, or I'm sorry, Nicodemus missed the meaning of what Jesus was communicating. Jesus said, you must be born from above, and Nicodemus's response was, you must be born again. And so he says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born, can he? Jesus was not speaking about a second birth from below. He was speaking about a second birth from above. To clear up Nicodemus's confusion, Jesus elaborated on what he meant in his response in verse 5. Notice, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus elaborates, and he says, first, you must be born from above, but then in verse 5, he says, you must be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, this is not about you crawling up into your mother's womb again. That's not what I said. I said that you need a new birth, and you need a new birth from above, not another birth from below. It comes from above, and you must be born of the Spirit. The Spirit is the agent of this new birth. Now, we'll come back and look at the word water in just a moment, but for now, it's important to note the word spirit in verse 5. The nature or the kind of birth that Jesus is talking about is a birth that comes from above and is carried about by the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual birth, not a human birth. Point number two, the need for the new birth. The need for the new birth. Why is it that we need to be birthed from above by the Spirit? Why? Why was this so important to Nicodemus? Answer, because in our first birth, or in our natural birth, we have inherited a sinful nature. In church, we'll... Develop this as the morning progresses, but understand this very clearly this morning. That which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. And there is no flesh in heaven as it's defined in the Bible, meaning your sinful nature. If you do not have a new nature now, 
you will not live forever then. Because the nature of this place is absolutely incompatible with the nature of that place. We need a birth from above. Now, notice the word flesh in verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. In Greek, it is the word sarx. On this verse, theologian Bruce Demarest writes this, quote, Scripture teaches that Adam's sin affected not only himself, but all of his offspring. Jesus affirmed as much when he said, Flesh gives birth to flesh, sarx, indicating fundamental human aversion to God and his holiness, end quote. This word sarx is also used by the Apostle Paul to refer to the state of man apart from Christ. Romans 8, 8 through 9 says, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. We inherited a sinful nature from our parents who inherited it from their parents, who inherited it from their parents, and who inherited it from their parents, all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. In theological terms, this is called original sin. David talks about original sin in Psalm 51, 5, after he repents from his affair with Bathsheba. And he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. When I came out of the womb, I was in iniquity, and even in conception was the way that I was uh, conceived. That didn't make any sense, but you know what I'm saying. John Calvin said, all of us who have descended from impure seed are born infected with the contagion of sin. Not only did we inherit a sin nature from Adam and Eve, but we also inherited a punishment from them. Again, in theological terms, this is called imputed sin. Note the difference. Original sin refers to the nature that you have received from Adam and Eve's fall. Imputed sin refers to the punishment that we have received from Adam as our representative head. Paul talks about the imputation of this punishment in Romans 5.18. Listen to what Paul says. This is extremely important so that you can understand the gospel. Listen. So then, as through one transgression... There resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to all men. So notice, one transgression, condemnation to all. We have not only received a sinful nature, but we have also had the punishment of Adam and Eve imputed to us. This is absolutely essential in understanding the gospel. Now, let me give you an example to illustrate this, because a lot of people often struggle with that. How is it that Adam and Eve made a mistake, and God blames me for their mistake? It's a valid question, right? The best uh, analogy that I can think of, it's kind of like a baseball team. Pretend for a moment you're on a baseball team, and you play an incredible game. You hit four home runs, maybe a grand slam, you played your heart out and did incredible. But after the game, because of a couple bad plays and the lack of performance by the other players on the team, the whole team lost the what? Game. The same thing is true of the human race. And Adam, as our representative head, threw the game for us. As far as God is concerned, we are united we are united in the punishment that we deserve. Now, why is this essential to understanding the gospel? Because it also says in Romans 5.18, rather, Paul says, even through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification and life to all men. In other words, Adam as our representative head through the game, and Jesus as our representative head won the game. So if you don't believe in the imputation of sin's punishment, then you cannot believe in the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you. So let's back up, though, a moment, because the issue in the text before us is not the topic of 
imputed sin. It's rather the topic of original sin. Original sin. Notice verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. We looked at the word flesh. It's sarks in Greek. Now the word is in Greek literally means be. The Launida Greek lexicon defines that word as to possess certain characteristics, whether inherent or transitory. So, fleshly or natural birth passes on fleshly characteristics to the offspring. And as it says in verse 6, the same thing is true of spiritual birth. Spiritual characteristics are passed on if the agent of your new birth is the spirit. So if you have been born of the Spirit, you have inherited the characteristics of the Spirit. But if you have only been born from below, the only characteristics that you have inherited are from Adam. So, let's take a look in this text at what the negative effects of original sin are. I believe Jesus says to Nicodemus in this section that there are four effects of the natural birth. And this reveals to us exactly why we must be born again. What have we inherited? Number one, first, note this, church, we are blind. We are blind. Look at verse two. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now notice the word no that Nicodemus uses in verse 2. It's the word oida in Greek. And the Vines Expository Dictionary defines oida as to know by perception. In effect, Nicodemus was saying, hey, Jesus, we're watching your life. You're doing all kinds of great things. So we perceive, we know that you're from God. But notice Jesus' response in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's a different word in Greek, and it means to perceive by sight. In effect, Jesus was saying this, Nicodemus, you don't see anything. Nicodemus is like, hey, Jesus, we know you come from God because you're doing great miracles. And Jesus said, you're blind. I'm God. Nicodemus was totally blind to the spiritual realities of who Christ was. He had to be born again, or he would never perceive the truth of the gospel. Number two, what's another effect of the nature from below? Filthiness. Filthiness. Look at verse five. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, where do you get that from, Pastor Ryan? Filthiness. Notice the word water in verse 5. Now, this is one of the most hotly debated verses in the New Testament because it presents us with several difficulties and There are five major interpretations on what Jesus said uh, water means. The Lutherans believe that it refers to baptism. Some churches who hold to baptismal regeneration believe that in order to be born again, you must be baptized. That's what water means here, they would say. Some say that it's not the baptism of Christ. Others refer to it as the baptism of John the Baptist, which is a baptism of repentance, not a baptism of receiving new life. That's for another sermon. Some people believe that this is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. That's what John Calvin believed because of the Greek construction of the word. And basically, really quickly, in verse 5, when it says water, and the English says and, probably a better translation of the Greek would be water Uh, even the Spirit. In the Greek, there's not a definitive separation as there is in English when we see water and Spirit. 
in Greek, they're actually, uh, the construction is united. So some people believe that uh, it's a synonymous with the spirit, meaning, so when he says water and spirits, water is just a reference to the spirit. Some people believe that here the word water is a symbol of the word of God. James Boyce believes that. A.W. Pink believed that. H.A. Ironside believed that. They believe that because uh, 1 Peter 1.23 and other places that seem to refer to the word of God as water. But I don't believe it means any of those things. I believe that it refers to purification. And there's many others that hold to this view as well. And let me see if I can't convince you of why this is what it means. I believe that water in verse 5 refers to purification for three main reasons, and I'm just going to hammer on one because I think it's the clearest to see. First of all, the, the development of the conversation is number one. Number two, the construction of the Greek, but thirdly and most importantly, the historical context. Now, this is, this, here's a freebie when it comes to Bible interpretation, what is the worst thing you can say to each other in your small groups when, it, when you're studying the Bible? What do you think it means? Why is that the worst thing that we could say? Because we are people who live in the 21st century. What we're reading in John chapter 3 is a conversation that took place in the Middle East between two first century Jews. So when we come across Jesus saying to Nicodemus, you must be born of the water and spirit, the question is not what is your 21st century perspective of water. The question is, what, did, what would have Nicodemus interpreted Jesus to mean when Jesus uses the word water? Does that make sense? So when we interpret the Bible, we believe in what's called a historical grammatical hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is the science of interpretation, and when we're trying to get the meaning of a text, we want to take the text in its historical and grammatical context. Does that make sense? Let me illustrate this for you in a way that maybe makes more sense in our modern day. Uh, One of the big debates surrounding the Constitution of the United States of America, and maybe you've heard this, that the Constitution is a living document. You heard that? That means they do not interpret the Constitution from a historical grammatical perspective. So I don't have to understand what the actual founders of our nations meant when they wrote it because it's a living document. It changes with time and whoever reads it. Does that make sense? So when we're here, what we want to do is we want to worship God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, but also with all of our what? Minds. And so we need to apply our minds to understand the context, the historical context of what's happening here. So the question becomes, what would a first century Jew have understood the word water to mean. More than that, who is Nicodemus? According to verse 10, he was the teacher in Israel. He was the most elite scholar on the Sanhedrin. That's one of the things that makes this conversation so incredible is Jesus is literally saying to the number one spiritual authority in the nation, you are going to hell. It's a crazy section of scripture. So what would Nicodemus have taken that to mean? The answer is very simple. What were the scriptures that Nicodemus had available to him? The Old Testament. So the question we have to ask is, what does water mean in the? Pretty simple, right? The answer, water is most commonly referred to as, in the Old Testament, as a cleansing from sin. It's referred to that in Leviticus 14, 8 through 9, 2 Kings 5, 10, Psalm 51, 2 through 3, Zechariah 13, 1, and we can go on and on and on and march through the whole Old Testament and see how pervasive that is in the Old Testament. Now, most notably, though, there seems to be a direct correlation between verse 5 here in John 3 and Ezekiel 36, 25 and 27. Let me read it to you, and you tell me if you don't see a correlation. Then, this is God speaking forward about what he will accomplish in our new birth through the prophet Ezekiel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be cleansed of all your filthiness. 
Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Water, I believe, here in John 3, refers to Nicodemus' need for a cleansing birth a birth that would cleanse him from his filthy idolatry. Why do we need to be born again? Because you're an idol worshiper. Because although God is clearly seen through creation, we don't worship and serve God as we should. We rather worship and serve the creation rather than creator God who is blessed forever. Amen. We have all turned aside and we have all gone astray to worthless idols and we serve money in man, in sex, and pleasure, and drugs. And we become the central focus of our universe, not the living God. At heart, we are idolaters, and we need to be cleansed from it. Why do we need a new birth? Because we're blind. Because we're filthy. And number three, we're callous. We're callous. Again... In verse 5, note, Jesus said, you must be born of water and the what? Spirit. And the Spirit. Why does he say water and the Spirit? Well, again, I believe this is a reference to Ezekiel 36 when those two things are mentioned together. Water is a symbol of cleansing. And notice in Ezekiel 36, 26, I'll read it to you again. Listen, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put my spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. When you punch a stone, what does it do? Nothing. Why does God say you have a heart of stone? A heart of stone is unresponsive to the spirit. It denotes affection. God speaks, you don't move. And Ezekiel is prophesying forward to this new birth where God will remove your unresponsive heart and place a fleshly heart in its place. What happens to a fleshly heart when you punch it? When it moves. When God speaks, you move. You see, apart from Christ, we are hard-hearted. We're blind to the things of God. We're idolaters. And when God speaks, we are virtually unresponsive. We have a deadness in us, a callousness. You know what I'm talking about? Working in the garden? You get calluses on your hands, or maybe you go to the gym, and it deadens the nerves. You can't feel If we have not been born again, we have a hard heart that is insensitive to the things of God. Our desire is not for God or his law. Paul graphically illustrates this point when he says, listen, Romans 8, 7. Because the mindset on the flesh, sarks, is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Your heart in the flesh is not even able to respond, according to Paul in Romans 8, 7. But when you get a new heart, you say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, I love the law of the Lord. But why? Why do we, as the people of God, go from a place where we love to wake up on Sunday morning and watch sports or bike ride or work out or take the day for me, And then all of a sudden, God does a work in our heart, and then this really weird thing we're doing right now becomes fun. My friends say to us, why do you go to church? Because it's fun. (laughs) What are you talking about? Some guy just gets up in a pulpit and he like yells at you the whole time. (laughs) At least that one does. How is that fun? I have a new heart. And when God speaks, I am moved. When people say that to you, when they say that preaching is not fun, when they complain about the lengths of the sermons, 
The ultimate question is, is hearing from God something that just bounces off of your hard heart? You must be born again. We are callous to God. Colossians 2.11 says, In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is the circumcision of the heart? It's a heart transplant when your heart of stone is removed and you get a new one. We're blind. We're hard-hearted. We're filthy. And finally, look at verse 5 again. We're estranged. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Notice the word, enter. If you are not born of the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus ups the ante. Nicodemus, you don't see anything. Furthermore, you're not going to get in. Now, the theology of the kingdom of God, theologians refer to it as now but not yet. The kingdom of God is among us. It's in among us in the church. Christ exercises his authority over the church through the preaching of his word. The kingdom is here, but it's not come in its fullness and in its consummation. How would have a first century Jew taken that phrase, enter? Well, he wouldn't have taken it as the kingdom of God is now among us. He would have taken it as the eschatological fulfillment of the return of God when he would set up his rule and reign on earth. So Jesus was making the point to Nicodemus, hey, you think you're in. Dude, you are not in. You are estranged from God. You're alienated. Colossians 1.21 says, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. To be alienated, to be estranged from God, listen, it means that you are under the wrath of God. It's not just like you're divorced from your spouse and you go on and you live another life. It means that you're divorced from God and you are under his holy and righteous indignation. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in John 3.36 where he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You're already under it. Church, hear me. How is it that we come to a place when we obey? Answer, within yourself, it is absolutely impossible. You have to have a new nature. You must be born again where you receive from God a new heart that becomes affectionate for the things of God and not for the things of the world. What has original sin done to us? Ultimately, it puts us outside the camp. And finally, see if I can do this in 10 minutes. Point number three, the work of the new birth. This is where it gets exciting, I promise. I want to make four points very quickly about the work of the new birth. Number one, it's origin. Number two, it's agent. Number three, the cause. And number four, the shock. The shock. The origin. Well, notice again, verse 3. Where's the origin? From above. From above. Who's the agent? The origin is from heaven. The agent, that is, who causes this to happen? Answer, according to verse 5, the Spirit. And notice verse 5 in your Bible. Hopefully, uh, depending on your translation, but hopefully, if you have a good translation, uh, the word spirit will be capitalized. Is that in your Bibles, the word spirit capitalized? I do believe the translators got it right, referring to the Holy Spirit as the agent of the new birth. Listen, our salvation is a Trinitarian work. The Son is put forth by the Father, the Son accomplishes the work, and the Spirit activates its reality in the lives of His church. Now, what's interesting here is the word spirit in verse 5 is the word pneuma in Greek. Now, the word pneuma also means wind or air movement. Why is that important? Because Jesus uses the word pneuma for a very interesting play on words in verse 8. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you heard the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the pneuma. So he uses the word pneuma twice in verse 8. But we know that he's referring to the Spirit because how he previously used the word pneuma in verse 5. 
This is a very interesting way to refer to the Holy Spirit. So we looked at the origin, the agent. Let's look at the cause. The origin is from heaven. The agent is the Spirit. How does it work? Well, according to verse 8, the pneuma blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes and where it's going, right? True about the wind, right? You hear it, shakes the trees, right? Do you know where it came from? Like, see, you feel the wind on your face. You're like, hmm, that came from that direction, about 100 miles, and it originated at 10,000. You don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. We don't know where it came from, and we don't know where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does that mean? He's saying the natural pneuma works the same way as the supernatural pneuma. You can't control the wind. And you cannot control the Holy Spirit. Theologians call this a monergistic birth. Monergism, or mono in Greek, is the Greek word for one. And urge, E-R-G, is from the Greek word work. So monergistic, or monergism, means one work. Opposed to synergism, right? We know this in business. You want to get your team on board, so you got a little synergy going on. Sin means with in Greek. And urge, again, means work. So more than one. So the question is, is when it comes to our new birth, how does the agent birth us? Is it synergistic or monergistic? According to verse 8, it's what? Monergistic. You don't control the wind. The Spirit alone causes new birth. And this passage makes it absolutely clear that God alone is the agent in our new birth. Listen, you have absolutely nothing to do with your new birth. Yeah, I did. What did you have to do with your natural birth from below? You had nothing to do with your natural birth from below. What did you do from eternity past? Knocked on your dad and mom's shoulders and said, hey, mom and dad, I'm going to put a twinkle in your eye. You had absolutely nothing to do with it. You didn't, you didn't choose your characteristics. You didn't choose your personality. You didn't choose the way that you look. You didn't set all that up. Your parents got together, and lo and behold, you were born in iniquity. So what do you have to do with the birth that is from above? Answer? nothing. Now, I'm going to lead you to why that's so important, so stay with me. Romans 8, 7, let me remind you, says that the natural man cannot respond to the law of God and is not even able to do so. The Spirit and the Spirit alone causes our regeneration. Listen to how John says it in John 1, verse 13. Listen to this. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How are we born? It's not through your bloodline. And parents, listen to me. Children, listen to me. You're not a Christian because your mommy and daddy are Christian. You're not born of God through blood. You're also not born of God by an act of your own will. That is born of the flesh. And you're also not born of God as the act of a will of another person. And let me just tell you, what is the hardest thing for me about being a pastor? It's that I can't hand out new birth. It's so grievous to me. Because I say with Paul, if it were up to me, I would be accursed for the sake of my countrymen. But this is a work of God and God alone. Why is this so important to understand? Because this is amazing grace. Not only did the Father send his Son to die in my place, but he gave me eyes when I could not see. And he made me clean when I was unclean. And he gave me an affection for him when I had no affection. And he brought me underneath the saving blood. 
Well, why? I have no idea. I mean, I know what he did to accomplish it, but why me? Why is Ryan Day saved, but my best friend in high school is now a heroin addict? When we were doing all the same stuff together. Because he blows where he wishes. What this does to you is it strips you of all self-sufficiency. Pastor Rob and I were at a pastor's conference and we heard John MacArthur preach on this text and he said this, and I love this. If I were to evangelize the Pope, this is the text that I would use. Because Roman Catholicism teaches that salvation is faith plus works. You have to place your faith in Christ, but you have to do penance. Nicodemus, if we, if we would, he was the Pope of Israel. He was the teacher according to verse 10. If anybody thought that they should go into heaven, Nicodemus thought for sure he was in. Very quickly, let me just point out three things about Nicodemus in under two minutes, and I'll let you go. According to verse 1, he was a Pharisee. That means he was a very moral man. Also, according to verse 1, he was a ruler of the Jews, which means he was on the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. So he was moral. He was also an incredibly gifted politician. And according to verse 10, notice again in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? The teacher? He was a scholar. He was moral. He was a politician. And he was the scholar. If anyone thought that they were going to heaven, it was Nicodemus. If anyone thought that they could work their way into heaven, Nicodemus thought he was in. So he says in verse 9, how can these things be? He's in shock. Now notice Nicodemus uses the word how on two separate occasions. He uses it in verse 9, and he also uses it in verse 4. He first uses it because he doesn't understand, how can I go back into my mom's womb? So he uses the word how to voice his confusion about what Jesus said. But in verse 9, there is no confusion. Nicodemus clearly understands what Jesus is saying, and he's no longer saying how because he's confused. He's saying, then how can I be born again? How is this even possible? Jesus, are you making this up? He's shocked at Jesus, but what does Jesus do? Jesus turns the shock back on him, and he says, are you not... You're shocked, Nicodemus? I'm shocked that you don't know this. Because he was the teacher, and the question we have to ask is, is the new birth prophesied in the Old Testament? Answer, pervasively. The author of Hebrews makes that point explicitly clear when he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 through 17, translating Jeremiah 31, or rather expositing Jeremiah 31, he says, and the Holy Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit testifies to us after saying, and he quotes Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their what? Heart. And on their mind, I will write them and their sins and their lawless deeds will be remembered no more. Jeremiah 31, he prophesies the new birth. And Jesus is like, dude, you're the teacher, and you, you missed it. Folks, to be born again is to be given a supernatural nature that causes you to have a new affection. And so let me just close with, with a single implication. If you're living in sin this morning, and I hear this all the time from men in particular, and this is from my message from the men, so. I just can't, what, stop doing this. I can't stop drinking. I can't stop doing drugs. I can't stop having sex. When you say, I can't as a Christian, what are you saying? 
I have a stony heart. I am incapable of responding to the promptings of the Spirit on my heart. Hear me, church. You must be born again. I'm not saying that getting over your sin is an easy thing. I'm not saying that we don't struggle with the flesh. The Bible makes that absolutely clear that we do. But what I am saying is the same thing that Paul says in Romans 8 when it refers to the work of the Spirit, and he says, and I quote, So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will For all who have been led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Church, sin is not an excuse for the man and woman who has been given a new heart. You must be born again. Our Father, who birthed us from heaven, hallowed be your name. We worship you for the new nature that you have placed within our hearts. How we were blind, but now we see. How we were unclean before you, but you have clothed us in the righteousness of your Son. And Holy Spirit, We don't thank you as much as we should. Thank you for life and more abundant life. Thank you for making us live not on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of our Father. Father God, would you grant new birth? Would you move upon your people who knew the truth of the gospel but had no life within them? We ask in Jesus' name.